You guys may be seated. And uh, we're going to continue our series that we've been doing in the book of 1 Peter. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, we'll be uh, studying the passage that Chris read for us a little bit earlier. And uh, we're going to be adding some other scripture to that as we go. And so we'll kind of be flipping around and looking uh, not just at the First Peter passage, but other verses that, that reinforce what Peter is trying to say. Um, we do know that a lot of what Peter wrote uh, was very similar to what Paul wrote in the New Testament. And so as, uh, as we read in, in Peter's writings, we can also look back at Paul's writings. And, and these two guys were, were contemporaries. Uh, we know that Peter... Uh, leaned on a lot of Paul's teachings because at the end of uh, Peter's letters, he says, you know, our brother Paul writes some things. He's kind of difficult to understand and, and basically saying, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of what Paul has said and revealed to us. And so we're going to be looking at these different things and, and bringing them uh, together. But today we want to start in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, back in verse 13. Now, last week we spent the whole week looking at verse 13, and he talked about preparing our minds for action being sober-minded and setting our hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed to us uh, when, Christ is, when Christ returns. And so we talked about the, the need to win the battle for our minds, that if you and I lose the battle for our minds, then we've lost the battle for our actions because our actions are going to flow out of our hearts and out of our thoughts. And so God's called us to set our minds uh, for, and prepare them for this action, to be sober-minded um, and to set our hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. If we lose sight of our hope, we're, we're in trouble. If, if we as believers ever lose sight of what lies ahead, the circumstances that we're facing today will overwhelm us. It will lead to a depression. It will lead to, to despair. It leads to all kinds of things when we lose our hope. So Peter starts this by saying, keep your, you know, keep your, your hope. Your, your, keep focused on that. Keep, keep anchored to. Set your hope fully on this grace. And we talked about a fighter pilot. Remember how he sets his radar on the target and wherever that, that, that thing goes, he's locked in. That's, that's what Peter's saying here is lock in on, on this hope. Set your hope on the grace of Christ and it will see you through. So today we're going to begin in verse 14. And, and uh, I just want to walk you through this. I want to let the scripture speak for itself because I think the scripture can say far more in, in a far more powerful way than I ever could. And so here's what he says. He says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the, to the patterns of your, of your former ignorance. He's calling us here to, to, to live a different life. He's, he's going to start by, by referring to us as obedient children. Uh, there's, there's a difference. There is a, a distinction that occurs when a person comes to Christ. We, 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 we put aside the old man and we begin to see this new man emerge. It's not instant. It's not automatic. It takes some time and it takes some effort on our part. But what, what God comes to do is to change us from the inside out. And so as he comes to change us, he comes to show us that, uh, that he's making us different. So he says here that, that we are being changed into this, these obedient children, okay? No longer being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. So there, there's a lot packed into this. He's saying that you and I used to live in what he calls a, a former ignorance. We were unaware of salvation. We were unaware of, of all the blessings and the benefits of coming to Christ. We were unable to accomplish those things in our own strength. But once you've become a child of God, that's that tender term, that, that child of God. You are to set aside the ignorance and to begin to be obedient. 
And that's what he's calling us to here. He says, as obedient children, there's that picture of that new man emerging. He says, don't be conformed. Don't be squeezed into or shaped by the passions of this world. Before we came to Christ, we were driven by our own passions, passions that have been shaped by the world. Those of us that have grown up in, in, in America, we, we've been taught all of our life, you work hard, you, you go at it night and day, you give it all you got, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps, and, and you make your own destiny. And we're told things like, he who dies with the most toys wins. That, that our, we're told that our identity and that our value come from the things that we're able to accumulate, the money that we're able to make, the things that we can buy. The things that adorn our lives that people look at and go, wow, I wish I had one of those. And we're told before we come to Christ that that's what gives us value. So we work our fingers to the bone. We strive night and day, longer and longer, harder and harder, trying to achieve things that are just temporary. And we accomplish great things. And yet we're not satisfied. We accomplish great things, and yet there's something that's still missing. And so we have to accomplish more. You, you, you win the race, but one race is not enough. You, you buy the car, but then it breaks down. You get the house, and then six months later, somebody builds a bigger one right down the street from you. And it's never enough. It never satisfies. And so Peter's calling us to, to recognize that, that, that what we are called to is something much higher than that, much greater than that, something that this world can't understand. It, the, the world is still in that, that mode of doing it as the world does it. But now that we've been brought into to this relationship with Christ, remember the first part of Peter here, first part of chapter 1, he talks about this great salvation. Now he's talking about the results of that salvation. The, the, the results that come from being born again, he says, is that you and I become uh, not, the, the, the new man emerges as obedient children. And we're not going to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Now in Romans chapter 12, Paul comes back and, and again he, he, he adds to, if you would, what Peter is saying here. In, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, everything that you are, your, your whole life, I want you to present that as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let me, let me put a little parentheses in here, and, and I know that you know this, but I think we need to be reminded of it often. Worship is not the three songs that we sing. We're, we're going we're gonna to worship now. No, we, we worship by giving ourselves to God. In the Old Testament, when people came to worship, they had to present an offering to God. You would you bring an offering of, of a dove or a, a, a lamb or, or some kind of a, a grain offering or a drink offering. You would bring an offering and present that offering to the Lord. That's what you did in the Old Testament. Fast forward now to the New Testament, to the coming of Christ, to, to this new relationship, this new covenant that we have. When we come to worship, we still need to bring something to God. And I'm not just talking about your tithe. He says here, you present your body as a living sacrifice. That is your worship, he says. 
So we can sing songs. We can blend a beautiful melody. We can even come in there and, and add harmonies. We can be pitch perfect. We can do all of that. We can sing to the, to the top of our voice. But if that song that I'm singing doesn't cause me to give myself to the Lord fully, then I haven't worshipped. Worship involves bringing something to the Lord. And that something, he says here, is ourselves. You are to present your body as a living sacrifice. So if we sing this morning and you haven't given anything to the Lord, you haven't given yourself to God, then you haven't yet worshipped. Because worship always involves bringing something to the Lord. And the gift that we give, guys, should declare God's worth. Think about that. The gift that you bring should declare his worth. What's the greatest thing you could give somebody? I could give you a hundred bucks. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this. What? That he lay down his life. That's what Paul's saying. The greatest thing that you and I can offer God is not a tithe. It's not an attendance in church for another hour. The greatest thing that we can give God, in fact, the only thing that is our spiritual worship is to give God ourselves. To come and to say, Lord, I am completely yours. That's part of this spiritual worship. And, and, and so he says, look, that's, that's what he's calling us to do, to, to present this living sacrifice, which is our body, ourself, to the Lord. And that is our spiritual worship. He says, verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So don't be conformed, but be transformed. Be changed. It's the Greek word that we get the word metamorphosis from. Something that changes from one form to another. Changes from one thing to another. I'm being transformed from the old man, driven by the world's passions, to a new man driven by God's passion. A, 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 a man who used to be driven with the things of this world and who is now driven by the things of God. There's a transformation, a metamorphosis that takes place, changing into another form, going from being worldly to being godly. And that's what we're called to do. And so he says here, he says, I want you to be transformed. How does that happen? Right back to what Peter said last week, by the renewal of your mind. That transformation's got to start within, and then it works its way out. Remember last week we said you've got to start with the root. And not just address the fruit. we got to look and say, what is my heart set on? That's the root. And, and what my heart is set on is going to determine what grows and what's produced in my life. So he says, you, 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 you don't be conformed, but you be transformed. And you do so by the renewal of your mind. So that by testing, by, by this examination, looking at your mind, examining your thoughts, examining your actions, you can prove genuine. You can discern what is the will of God. So you can, you can prove that the will of God is perfect. It's good and acceptable and perfect. That it lacks nothing. So we must be convinced that only God's will can satisfy us completely. So Paul says that in, in there. Let's go back now to, to 1 Peter. And let's look at what he's saying. He's saying, I, I want you not to be conformed, just like Paul said, to the passions of your former ignorance. But verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. 
Now, here's what he's going to say. You had a passion for former ignorance. That's what guided your life. You, you had this passion for, for your ignorance, for, for this former ignorance. But now you should have a passion for holiness. And not just holiness for the hour that you're at church. But he says holiness in all of your conduct. That means my language needs to be holy. My thoughts need to be holy. My, my actions need to be holy. My motives need to be holy. In, in everything, God calls us to a higher calling. He calls his children to be holy. You say, well, I can't do that. And, and you're right, and yet you're wrong. You're right that you can't do it on your own. But you're wrong to give up and to think that it can't be done at all. We can be holy before the Lord because he has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us to make us holy and to make us pure and to make us more than we could ever be on our own. So he says, just as he who called you is holy, then you should be holy. Here's what Peter's saying. God made you his child in order to remake you in his image. He's made you his child so that like father, like son, you can be made different. As God is holy, then God is in the process of, of making us holy. It's the process of sanctification where God changes us from who we were to who he's created us to be. So God has called us to, to be holy. He has called us to, to live and, and to, to reflect him in all that we do. Look at verse 16. He says, Be holy in all of your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a quote taken out of Leviticus, and we're not going to put those verses on the screen, but in Leviticus chapter 11, they are being told all the things that are clean that they can eat and all the animals that are unclean that they can't eat. And it's this list, and oh my gosh, it makes your brain hurt just to think, oh my goodness, if that was, if that was my dietary plan, I'd have to know all these different, which kind of animals and what kind of hoof they have and what kind of thing. But, but here, here's what they're saying in, in Leviticus. He's saying to, to his people, I want you to be able to distinguish between what's clean and unclean. Isn't that the same thing God's asking us to do today? Now, it's not about dietary laws. But I want you to distinguish between whether that thought you just had was clean or unclean, pleasing or unpleasing. Whether the way that you talked to your spouse, was that pleasing to God and honoring to her, or, or was that displeasing to God and dishonoring to her? Was the way that you treated that coworker? was the, the, the money that you paid that guy that works for you, was the way that you treated that guy that's competing for the same job you're competing, is that godly or is that ungodly? I want you to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong, what's permissible and what's not. And that's what he's saying here. I want you not to be God, but I want you to begin to, to, to act and behave and to reflect God to the world around you. So I want you to be holy, for, for I am holy. But Satan doesn't just sit back and let this happen without coming against us and trying to stop what God's doing. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, there, there's a, a passage that talks about three different ways that Satan tries to, to derail believers, the way he tries to distract us and pull us away from what God has for us to do. And so in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11... Uh, let's look at verses 2, 3, and 4. It's what he says. He says, um, Paul is writing to these people, and he says, I, I feel this divine jealousy for you. In other words, I, I have this deep desire for you to accomplish the best, to be the best that you can be. 
since I betrothed you or I promised you to one husband. So Paul is, is picturing himself here as a father who's got a child who has betrothed his child to another to be married. And so he's saying, look, to the, he's saying to the believers here, he says, I've promised you to Christ. You're my child in the Lord. I've led you to Christ, and I promised you to him. I promised you to, to another, to a husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul feels his responsibility to help him to grow up, to be pure, just like a, he want his daughter to be pure when she's presented to her husband. Now watch this, great imagery here. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, I'm afraid that just as Satan tricked Eve, he's going to trick you. And he's going to lead your what? Your thoughts astray. Why do we have to guard our minds? Why do we have to prepare our minds for action? Because he says, I I know that what Satan's going to do is to try to to, to deceive you. And the way he deceives us is to get our minds off the truth. And there's three ways that Satan uh, deceives man. Three counterfeits that Satan throws out here. And look at what in verse 4 he lays those out. He said, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, that's the first way. Number two, if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, that's the second way. Number three, if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, then he says to them, you guys just put up with this. How are you going to be led astray? There's three counterfeits. A diminished Christ. Someone comes and proclaims another Jesus. Nobody can proclaim a greater Jesus than there is. There is no greater So if they're going to proclaim a different Christ, it's going to be a diminished Christ. And and that comes in many forms. It may be somebody saying, well, well, yeah, we'll we'll give you that Jesus was a good prophet. We'll give you that Jesus was a good guy, that he was a moral teacher, that he set a great example. They're going to diminish Christ. They're going to take away his deity. They're They're going to do some things to kind of bring him down to our level and make him just one of us. A diminished Christ is one counterfeit. The second counterfeit is a, is a false spirit. You, you receive a, a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what other spirit is there? Well, isn't Satan a spirit? And, and doesn't he disguise himself? The scripture says that, that, that it, there's no doubt that, that Satan's angels, his demons, pr- parade around and, and, and deceive people. For even Satan himself appears as the angel of light. He's going to get you to believe in a counterfeit spirit, to to hear that other voice that wants to whisper in your ear and tell you, well, just this once. Or that's not a bad compromise, or you're just human. It's that that, that lie that Satan whispers to us, that, that false spirit that speaks to us. So a diminished Christ or a false spirit, or the third thing, and this is just as dangerous, is an altered gospel. If you accept a different gospel from the gospel that we've proclaimed, if you change the gospel, if you alter the gospel, if you you try to take away or add to what God's already given us in his word, then you're going to be deceived. And so he says here we've got to watch that and you've got to be careful that we don't get deceived by Satan and led astray. So we seek to be holy in all of our conduct. We do it because the God that has saved us, the God that has called us, the God that's planned our future is a holy God. 
And he is busy about remaking us in his image. And then verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then you need to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, remember, he, he referred to them as, as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers in a, in a land. So here's what he's saying. Let's break this down. He says, okay, so if you call upon God and you admit that, that God is a, a, a judge who judges impartially and that God is going to judge us at the end according to the deeds that we've done, then what does that mean? If what you say is true about God, then your actions ought to give evidence of that. here's, Here's the thing. If we really believed that our actions brought consequence, either good or bad, reward or loss, that would change the way that we live. If we really believe that we serve a God who judges impartially, in other words, he, he sticks true to the facts. See, I think sometimes, and, and maybe this is just me, but I think sometimes we tend to think that because God's poured out grace on us, that I can just do whatever I want to do, and at the end, God's just going to erase it and say, don't worry about it, it's all cool. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card, we think. And that's not good, and that's not biblical. It's not true. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The Bible says that. It makes it clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look at this one together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 9 and 10. He's talking about getting to heaven one day. That's the context of these verses. And that one day we will stand before the Lord. And he's, he's talking about those, those famous passages where he says, Man, I would, I would rather depart right now and go be with the Lord. That would be so much better. But, but if God leaves me here, then I'm going to honor God in everything I do. And so this is kind of the conclusion of that thought. He says in verse 9, So whether we are at home, still here, or we're away with the Lord in heaven, we're going to make it our aim to please him. Why? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, he's just called us in 1 Peter to be holy. Why? Because we have a God that we will appear before, a God that will judge our actions. Here's what I think he's judging. Were you holy or were you not? Did you pursue holiness or did you pursue worldliness? Did you pursue God or did you pursue the things of this world? What was the driving force of everything that you lived for and everything that you did? And I think when we stand before the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ, we're we're going to receive what is due for those decisions, for whether we pursued holiness or whether we pursued worldliness. And it's so easy to get caught up in this world and pursue the things of the world because everybody around us is doing it. But we're going to stand before the Lord and there will be rewards that God 
gives. Truth is, we don't deserve any of those rewards. Anything that God chooses to, to, to bestow upon us will be nothing more than his grace. But yet, even though what I deserve is death, and that my behavior could never measure up to even the smallest reward from God, he says there's going to be that day we stand before him and we'll receive what's due for either the good that we've done, that pursuit of holiness, or the evil that we've done, which is that pursuit of other things. And I don't think that those who pursue other things are going to be pleased on that day to find out that all those things they pursued are worth nothing. Remember the story that Jesus tells of, um, or maybe it was Paul, I think it was Paul that told the story uh, that, that we're going to stand before the Lord and that, that everything in our lives will be tested by fire. I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says, some will build with wood, hay, and straw, and others with gold and silver and, and, and precious stones. And their works will be tested by fire. And just think about that. Everything that you've strived for, everything that you've lived for, placed upon the altar, tested by fire. And Paul uses the image of wood, hay, and straw. What happens to that if it's put on fire? And it's, it's, it's gone in a heartbeat. But gold and silver and precious stones are refined by fire. And so he's, he's saying you need to, 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 to examine your life and, and determine if, if what you're living for is wood, hay, and straw that, that matters nothing in eternity, or are you living for that which will last into eternity? Do you realize this? All the money that you make, all the achievements that you're able to accomplish, all the titles, all the degrees, all the stuff that this world says that we've got to have to be somebody, up in smoke. It won't matter. When you cross from this life to the next, it will not matter. So why do we spend so much time pursuing those things? So here's what he's saying. If you realize that you've got a father that's going to judge impartially based on the facts, he's not going to just say, oh, I love you, never mind, just, just ignore that one. No, he's going, to, he's going to judge based upon the facts. Then you've got to conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile for the remaining time that you have on earth. Does that mean I need to be scared to death of God? That's not at all what that word fear means. That word fear means this, this reverence and this respect for the holiness of God. I need to live my life in fear with, with reverence and respect for the holiness of God throughout the rest of my life, he's saying. What would be my motivation for doing that besides this reward in eternity? Is there any present motivation for, for a life like that? Peter says there in verse 18, you do this knowing, fully aware, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's your old life. Look at how he describes our old life before Christ. Don't, don't miss this. Look at how he describes our old life. It is a futile life, worthless life. It was inherited from your forefathers. It was passed down to you since the day of Adam. That's our old life. 
Remember in verse 12, he described it as a former ignorance. And now he's saying it's a futile way of life that was just handed down to you. It just came natural. It was poured into you since birth, even before birth with Adam and Eve and and, and all that have come before us. But he says, "You you were ransomed, you were redeemed. So what did it cost God to redeem us? Because if I understand fully what it costs God to redeem me, there is some motivation there for me to be holy. There's motivation there for me to live in a, in, in a different way. Look at what he says. You were ransomed, he says, from the old way, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Think about this. What if God had set up, instead of saying, okay, in order for, for mankind to be redeemed, my son's got to go to the cross. What if God just said, hey, it's going to cost $100,000 per person to redeem each person and to bring them into heaven. Would that have really cost God anything? The God who owns everything, would that have cost God anything? It would been a drop in the bucket, right? You just pay it out and it's all done. He says, you weren't ransomed that way. God didn't pay silver and gold to redeem you. He didn't pay silver and gold to, 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 to ransom you. What's he saying? He says, the, the things that are the best of this world, that wouldn't have done it. The best this world has to offer wasn't enough to redeem you. wasn't enough to ransom you. You weren't ransomed with perishable things, things that can't last, things that don't really matter in the large scheme of things. You weren't ransomed by this world's best, but you were ransomed by heaven's best. Verse 19, you were ransomed with the precious blood of of Christ. Think about this. It costs God more to redeem you than it did to create you. It costs God more to redeem you than it did for him to create you. We were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, that blood that is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's what he's saying. The blood of Christ is precious, it's perfect, and it's priceless. And that's what it costs God to redeem us. How can we hear that, know that, receive that, believe that, and be satisfied to be unholy? How can we know what it costs God to redeem us and just have this laissez-faire attitude about life? What if you had given your child's life to save somebody else's life. And your child dies and that other person lives. And yet that person that lived, lived as if what you gave up didn't really matter. That's that's what happens when when God gave his son for us and we just live and go, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm just going to do what makes me happy. I'm just going to do what I want to do. 
It's my life. That's saying, God, I don't really appreciate, I don't really care, I don't really value what you gave for me. I wonder sometimes if we don't look at the the sacrifice of Christ and rush past the sacrifice and go, well, I mean, God knew he was going to be resurrected in three days. Okay, so yeah, it was a couple bad hours on a cross and everything's been good since then, right? How can we, how can we do that? How can we diminish the cost? If nothing else motivates us to live for Christ, the cost of the cross and the cost of our redemption, our ransom, ought to be enough. Your ransom with the precious blood of Christ. It says in verse 20, Now he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Now what's, what's he saying? Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Let's go back to John. John chapter 1, the book of John, starts with this statement. In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God. He was, not it, but He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. So he was there with God. He was God in the beginning. He created with God in the beginning. So he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But look, but he was made manifest in these last times. In other words, he was revealed to us in these last times, in our day. For our sake. In John chapter 1, back there, verses 10 through 14. Look what he says. He says, he, Jesus, was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet, the world, his creation, did not know him, its creator. He came to his own, to his people that he created. And his own people did not receive him. In other words, they rejected him. But all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave, he gave the right to become children of God. This is how we became those obedient children that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter. We, we, we did so because Jesus came to his own and, and we have received him. We have welcomed him and accepted him. We have believed in his name. In other words, we believe that he is who he claimed to be. And in that process, he gives us a right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. In other words, the salvation that you and I have received didn't come from man. It came from God. And we were born of God. That is that spiritual birth, that rebirth. And then it says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen its glory as of the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was revealed, he was made manifest, he was made known in these last times for our sake. Why? So that we might know him and we might follow him, that we might become his children. 
He's made known, he says, in the last times for the sake of you, for your benefit, for my benefit. Verse 21, for those of us who through him are believers in God. So he came for the sake of those who will be believers in God. And then he clarifies the God. He says, the God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith, my faith, and our hope are in God. Remember, anchor your hope to the grace to be revealed to you. Jesus came and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And so we're tying all these things together here. He's saying, listen, I want you to know this, that that God revealed his son to us, that we might have salvation, that we might become believers in God, the God that raised him from the dead, the God that's exalted him in, in glory, so that our faith and our hope are in God and in what God's done, not in ourselves. If you're basing your salvation on anything other than what God has done, if, if you think, well, man, I'm, I'm going to start going to church and I'm going to get good and I'm going to be pure and I'm going to live a right life and I'm going to stop cussing and I'm going to start tithing and I'm going to start, then, then your hope is in something other than God. Your hope is in what you can do. Peter is saying here that our hope is, is, is in the Lord. Our faith and our hope are in God. And, and, and faith is just simply trusting God in the present with what God's already revealed. Hope is, is a future trust. It's, it's trusting God for the future that God has promised. So in this, in this passage, if I could just kind of give you a bullet note here, he's saying that you and I learn to live trusting God. We trust God with our past. We trust God in our present. And we trust God for our future. All three of those are critical. Listen, you have to trust God with your past. Some of you here have things that you've done in your past. All of us have things we've done in our past that we're ashamed of and that we can't escape. We have a guilty conscience that just plagues us. And I've got to trust God with my past. But I've also got to trust God in my future. That's faith right now. And then I trust God for, I mean, I, I trust God with my past. I trust God in my present. That's faith. And I trust God for my future. That is hope. Remember, Scripture says that, that there's faith and there's hope and that there's love. Well, look at here. We, we've talked about faith. We're talking about hope. And now he's going to move into love. Look at verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, that's a weird way of saying something. It almost sounds like he's talking about a, a salvation by works. You purified your soul by being obedient to the truth. So you have, you have deserved God's salvation. Is that what he's saying here? Can't be, because that would contradict everything he's just said. What's he saying? He's saying this. You have purified your soul. You have rid your soul of the old man. You put that old man to death, the old man that he talked about, that former ignorance, those those. those those, um, those things, those futile ways of the past, you've put those things aside. You've rid your soul of that. So you've purified it. You, you've, you've rid yourself of the impurities. And we do that by choosing to obey the truth instead of believing the lies. So there's a shift in our loyalty. There's a shift in our, in our allegiance. He's not talking about that you saved yourself. He's saying that once you've been saved, there is a, a process of putting the old man to death and letting this new man emerge. You stop believing the lies of Satan and you start building your life on the truth of God's word. It's, it's done by obedience to the truth. 
And the outcome is that you have a sincere brotherly love. There's that word phileo, the word that we get Philadelphia from. In fact, actually in the Greek, the word Philadelphia is, is the word that's used right there, this brotherly love. So that when we're born again, there, God places in our heart this, this brotherly love for our brothers in Christ. And then he says, now love one another earnestly. That changes to a different form of love. That is the Greek word agape. So he says, look, there's a, there's a progression even in the way that we love people. You, you come in and you, you begin to obey the truth and it develops this deep love for your brothers in Christ. But then it grows into an agape love, a deeper love than, than anything that we've ever known before. It's a love for one another that's earnest and it comes from a pure heart. And, and why do we do that? He says it's, it's since you've been born again, because you've been born again. And that new birth, that being born again, was not accomplished by perishable seed. Not, it, it doesn't have a human origin, he says, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He's about to do something here in the next couple of verses that we'll close with today, but, but watch this. He's saying, you were born again, not of something of human origin, but of something imperishable, of heavenly origin. And we were born again through the living and abiding word of God. It's through the gospel that we come to know all that Jesus has done on our behalf. If it weren't for the gospel, we wouldn't know that we had been ransomed. If it wasn't for the gospel, we wouldn't know that we've been given the Holy Spirit. If it wasn't for the gospel, we wouldn't know. We, we wouldn't have been revealed to us who Jesus was and all that he came to do. And so we are born again, not of perishable seed, but of, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Talk to us about this word of God. It says in verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Bullet points, real quick. What does it say about the Word of God? First of all, that it's living. Second of all, that it's active, that it's life-giving. Third is that it's powerful. Fourth, that it's penetrating. Fifth is that it's discerning. Sixth is that it's revealing. Nothing is hidden from its sight. And finally, that it's transforming. That's the Word of God that Peter's talking about here when he says that you and I are born not of perishable seeds, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. So it's alive and it's active, it's working, but it's also abiding. It lives on and on and on. It remains forever. This Word of God is the gospel that you and I have been given. In, in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes. For in it, watch this, for in it, verse, verse uh, 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the holiness of God. It's revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Why? It's the power of God to salvation. That's, that's what Peter's saying here. It's, it's this power of God that works through the gospel, that brings us this, this, this new life where we're born again. So it's this abiding word of God, this living word of God. And then he says in, in verse 24, All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. Listen, listen close. This life that you and I are living will soon come to an end. It's not going to last. It's, it's like the grass. It's here and it's gone. It's like the flowers. They're, they're here and then they fall. All earthly things will perish. But look at verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. If, if the word of the Lord is trustworthy and it's true and it's going to last forever, then you and I better be busy building our lives upon that. If the word of God is powerful, active, enduring, abiding, long after I'm gone, And long after you're gone, the word of God will remain. Say, well, I prefer my opinions to the word of God. Long after your opinions are dead and gone and stinky, the word of God will still be true. So God gives you the choice to believe his word and to respond accordingly and to live accordingly or to hang on to your opinion that is like the grass and the flowers that will wither and will fail. Some of the hardest people to convince that something is true are those that have already believed a lie and staked everything on the lie. Some people believe theories, lies, different things that are out there. And then later on, more truth comes to light. But in order for them to admit that what they've just discovered is true, they have to admit that what they've been believing was a lie. And some people would rather defend the lie, even knowing that there's something else out there that disproves that lie. They would rather believe the lie than admit they were wrong. And we lived in former ignorance. We lived as slaves to our old man. We lived in, in, in this ignorant life. And some of, some of those in our world right now would say, I would rather just hang on to that and, and say, you know what, I'm going to fake it till I make it. And I'm not going to admit. Even though the Bible says that I was wrong, even though the Bible says all these things, I'm going to hang on to what I've always believed. Rather than saying, you know what, I've learned something. 
And I'm smarter now than I was then. God's opened my eyes now in a way that I couldn't see before. Don't hang on to the lies. Set them aside because you know what? Those things will go to the grave with you. But the word of God will remain forever. And then he closes verse 25 by saying this. And this word, this gospel, it's the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. What if somebody had not loved you enough to share the gospel? What if somebody didn't, they were so self-absorbed with themselves that they didn't even care if you ever heard the gospel? You'd still be lost. And, and this is the gospel that was preached to us. And he says here, and I'll, I'll just add to this, it's also the gospel that we should be preaching to others. Long after we're gone, God's word will still stand. So here we go. Let's wrap this up. What Peter has said this morning, okay, is both a reminder and a call. It's a reminder of everything that we have possible, we have been given in Christ. Everything that's available in Christ. This sure hope that's based upon and anchored to the grace of God. This fresh start that, that delivers us from our ignorance and, and brings us into the light, that, that frees us from our old man and, and helps the new man to emerge. It, it's, a, it's also available as a passion for holiness instead of just a passion for worldliness. It's a future reward that will come when we stand before the Lord and he's our impartial judge and he rewards us for this pursuit of holiness. It's an assurance of our worth. I need you to think about this this morning. What, what determines the worth of an item? Is it what I say it's worth? If I told you this bottle of water, I've drank out of it, and now it is worth a million dollars because my lips were on this bottle. Would that make it worth a million dollars? What about now? I drank twice out of it. What, what determines the, the value? What somebody's willing to pay for it. And that's it. I can say all day long, this is worth, but it's really only worth what somebody will pay for it. Let me ask you to think about this. What was paid for you? What did Jesus pay for you? Because that determines your value. And then I have to ask this question. Why do we look to lesser things to define our worth when all we have to do is look to the cross and realize what Jesus was willing to pay for us? That's where our value comes from. That's where our worth comes from. So we have this life of faith and hope and love that he's just described here at the end of this passage. And then we have the eternal truth of God's word to guide our life as a rock-solid foundation to build upon. So Christians, I've got to ask you this today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ and say that he is your Savior, that he's your Lord, that he's your Master, that you've given everything to him, are these things that we've talked about this morning, are they a reality in your life? 
Are all of these things that we've just described, this, this pursuit of holiness, this, this, this moving away from the ignorance, are all these things a part of your life right now, or are there still some holes that need to be filled in? Chances are there's still a few things that God is working on in you, because none of us have arrived. But there is a high calling upon our lives because there was a high price paid for our lives. God has given us his son. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word to make this life that God desires possible for you and me. There's nothing lacking in what we need except for our willingness and our desire to pursue his holiness. What could be more important and more rewarding than experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus makes possible. So Jesus issues this higher calling to us as believers. The real question is, will we answer that call? And then anytime we gather together in in corporate worship, or even with folks watching online, we've got to ask the question, there's some that still don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They, they may have heard of Jesus, but they're not in a relationship with Jesus. They've not yet surrendered their life to him. And I would say to those of you today that fit that category, man, I'm glad you're listening, and I'm glad that you're here. And I want to say to you today that you can answer that call today. You can answer that call to come into a relationship with Christ. You can know this life that we've described. You can be set free from that old man and those old pursuits into something that's going to last for eternity. Christ paid the ransom for you, even though right now you may not realize it. So what do you do? Well, if you want to be in a relationship with Christ, the first thing you got to do is admit that you're not. And, and that's a big one. There's a lot of folks that Satan's got fooled into thinking that because they attend church from time to time that they're in a relationship with Jesus, and they may not be. I sat in church for 18 years before I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you've got to admit that you're not. You need to admit that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself. That's why Jesus had to die in your place. You need to believe that Jesus died and paid the complete price, the complete ransom for you. You need to have a willingness to turn from your sin and turn to your Savior. Then you come to God and ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you, and to make you his child. And that can be done right now, right here today. He calls you to a whole new life, to leave behind everything you've known and to be made brand new today. And, And that's the calling that God has upon every one of our lives, guys. But we've got to come, and we come knowing and wanting and desiring to be transformed and to be made more holy. This life begins by us dying to ourself and to our sin. It it, it gives us, it brings us a a new heart, a new mind, a, a new attitude, and a new behavior. And this life is only possible through what Jesus did on the cross for us. It's the life that's made known through the gospel. It's a life that's brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this new life can be yours today.
And what it will do is transform everything about you. Little by little, God will remake you into the person he's created you to be. I believe it's available to all who are tired of the old life and are ready to follow God. This is the gospel that we preach here at Crossroads. It's the gospel that we strive to live here at Crossroads because it's the gospel that saves the power of God unto salvation. And that gospel can be yours, and that salvation can be yours right now. Are you ready to step out of the old and to step into the new? Let's pray together. And if you are right now, as I pray, you can talk to God. Prayer, guys, is just you talking to God as if he's sitting right there in front of you. There's no magic words. It's just you saying to God, God, I'm ready for so much more. I'm ready to do life on your terms. So as we pray, if you're here today without that relationship with Jesus, but you're ready to start fresh, would you just, in your heart, it doesn't have to be out loud, but would you just say to the Lord in your heart, God, I'm ready. So tired of this old life. I'm tired of trying to do it in my own strength and getting nowhere. I understand today that Jesus paid the ransom. He paid the price so that I can live. And right now, right now, I just want to ask Jesus to come and to take over my life. To breathe new life in me. To start this transformation process that we've talked about today. And I just want to be your child, God. I want to belong to you forever and ever. I want you to lead me and to guide me from this day forward. The Bible says that if you come honestly and humbly before the Lord and you ask that, that he will save you, he will forgive you, he will cleanse you, he will make you his own. So don't believe me. Believe God's word. That whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So today, if you're calling out to God, you, you hear his call upon your life and you're responding by saying, God, I'm ready and I'm willing and I am taking that step today to follow you and to become your child. If that's you, right where you are and you've just talked to God and you just ask him to do that, I don't in any way want to embarrass you. In fact, we won't embarrass you at all. But I would like to know that you're making that decision so that I can pray for you and so that we can connect and we can talk some more about what this means and how to get you started in this, this walk with the Lord. And so if this morning, if you've, you've asked the Lord to help you to start fresh and you've helped to help make you his child, would you just simply slip your hand up and just say, Rob, that was me. I, I did that. And I wish you'd just pray for me. I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I just want to know that that's you today. Just slip your hand up and say, that's me. I'm ready for something brand new. There's others of you here that there's some holes that you've seen this morning. You've been pursuing something other than holiness. And today you're ready to pursue God wholeheartedly. And God, I just want to pray for those friends that are ready to do that, that you give them the grace and the strength and the courage to follow you with all their heart. And I pray that as they do, that you'll get glory and honor that's due to you.
that they'll present their bodies to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is their worship.